Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, our text for this morning will be Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Uh, before we read God's word, though, let's uh, pray one more time. Our Heavenly Father, we, we do come now to your word. We are uh, needy people. Uh, we are humble people. We are sinful people. And we need your help uh, to understand this text. We need help to apply it. We pray, O oh Lord, that your spirit would do that work in us now, not only uh, as we hear it read, but also as we hear it preached. And pray that your, your spirit would take this truth and, and plant it deep down in our hearts and that we would receive it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. I think it's a bit of an understatement to say that the past two years or so have been extra challenging, uh, not what anybody anticipated or expected. These past two years have been filled with uh, change and frustration and worry, and anxiety, and loss. Uh, I'm sure something none of us, nobody really could have predicted. Uh, and I wonder if you feel a little bit like me when some of these trials hit, uh, where you just, you sense that this world feels a little bit unsatisfying at times. Not, not, not good, not bad, just unsatisfying. There is always something in which this world seems to fall short, always something that doesn't seem to, to satisfy us fully, and, and there's a reason for that. This world is, is not meant to be our home. Uh, Paul himself actually earlier, a few verses earlier in Philippians where we read uh, this morning, he says that, that one of the realities that Christians need to cling to at all times is what he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is not on this earth. It's in heaven. This world is a strange place. We're in exile. We're wandering through the wilderness. This is not the promised land. And as Paul starts to close out this letter to the Philippians, his very last chapter, the, the big point he is trying to make is really that point, that our citizenship is in heaven, and how that reality should change our life now, how that reality should change the way we, we interact with each other, how it changes the way that we think, how it changes the way we process this life, what we, the things that we meditate on and, and think about and participate in. Paul is writing to a very, very anxious church in Philippi. 
They're going through various uh, uh, trials, um, a lot of different circumstances that, that, are, that are shaking them, that are, are destabilizing their faith, so to speak, which, which quite easily, if, if they let it happen to them, could, could lead to discouragement and doubt and disappointment. All in all, just being crushed by their trials that they're facing. And as Paul closes out this letter, his word for them is, is to keep their eyes fixed on their heavenly homeland. Keep their eyes fixed on the glorious inheritance that they have waiting for them, for their true citizenship, for their true home, which is in heaven. And really, when, when we get to our text this morning, verses 4 through 7, Paul is, in essence, giving us three different tools Three tools in, in the form of commands to, to train our thoughts and to train our eyes and how to keep them fixed in heaven. Three tools to help us overcome those trials, really to, to overcome the sin that tempts us in the midst of those trials. So he tells us those three tools to rejoice, to be gentle, and to pray thankfully. And so those are the three points we're going to look at this text under. First is the command to rejoice. Verse 4, I'll read it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. On the face of it, your, your first reaction might be rejoice always. Surely, Paul, you, you don't mean that exactly. You, you don't really mean always, always. You just mean like regularly, right? It doesn't make much sense on the face of it. How can I have joy right now? Do you understand what I've been going through? Have you seen what's happened in my life lately? How can I have joy right now? Well, it's because we don't rejoice in the circumstances. We rejoice in the Lord. It's not rejoice in your circumstances always, it's rejoice in the Lord always. If, if Paul sounds a little unrealistic, if he maybe sounds a little insensitive, we can page through this book and see the tragedy that Paul himself is facing and this church. And so just a couple verses before what we read in, in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul is saying, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord some sort of strife, some sort of rivalry, some sort of conflict is going on in this church. Uh, there's conflict inside of it. Keep paging backward in chapter 3, verse 6. Paul is describing all of these different things that he used to be, and he says in chapter 3, verse 6, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Paul is somebody who has to wrestle regularly with his past guilt and all of the, the horrible, horrible wickedness he committed against God's people. That past sin, that past guilt. Chapter 2, verse 27, talking about his, his friend Epaphroditus, he says, Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus was somebody sick near to the point of death. And Paul is still commanding to rejoice. 
Going all the way back to um, verses 17 and 18 in chapter 2. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul himself, knowing that he might face death, he may be killed uh, in the course of his ministry says to rejoice. Chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, I don't want you to be frightened in anything by your opponents. There are a lot of opponents trying to, trying to steal away the, the sheep in this flock. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, I, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's in prison as he's writing this letter to a hurting church. And so you say, Paul, what do you mean rejoice always? Paul knows what he's talking about as he faces the trials. He's not distant. It's because we don't rejoice in the prosperity. We don't rejoice in success or in promotions or good grades. We don't rejoice in the good gifts that the Lord gives us. We rejoice in the Lord. So what does it mean to actually rejoice in the Lord? Actually, Jesus himself gives us a, a, a great example of this in Luke chapter 10. After he's, he's sent out his disciples to uh, to evangelize and to heal and to preach and to do a lot of, of miracles and wonders. As they come back to him, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoicing in the Lord means we rejoice in the fact that our names are written in the book of life in heaven, inscribed in stone forever. Even in Philippians chapter 1, uh, again, another well-known section uh, of this book, Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul rejoices in the fact that, that no matter what happens to him, he knows Christ's name is going to be glorified in what he's doing. Christ's name is going to be proclaimed and honored and preached, and he's seeking Christ's glory. Later on in, in the book, another, another well-known verse, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. We have joy and we rejoice in the midst of all things, rejoicing in the Lord because we are one with Christ and because we have this promised heavenly inheritance, because we have the Holy Spirit given to us by Christ to indwell us 
and to strengthen us uh, for the battle. We know that God, because of Christ's work, is working all things for our good. And so everything in the world might change around us. Everything in our lives may change, but, but our joy never changes because God does not change. God does not change in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our hardships. Our eternity is secure. God himself is an everlasting rock for us. And so we rejoice in the Lord all the time. That joy might look different in the way we express it. It might be uh, clapping and singing on a Sunday morning in the service. Uh, it might look like Paul and Silas sitting in the dirt in a jail cell in Philippi singing hymns in the middle of the night. It might look like an enthusiastic witness, an evangelistic opportunity, bursting at the seams to tell somebody about Jesus. It might look like a, a silent prayer with tears in your eyes um, in the, the quiet of your own home. Either way, joy is something for us to cultivate in our Christian lives. Uh, like, like love, right, this is the, the common uh, misconception about love in culture, joy is not just the spontaneous emotion that happens to you. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit that He works in your heart. And it's something to cultivate. It's something to grow in. We grow in that joy when we've really grasped is something that, that Don Carson says when we've grasped the depth of the abyss of our own sinful nature and the curse from which we've been freed. And we grow in that joy when we've grasped the heights of the splendor to which we have been raised in Christ. We grow in that joy when we meditate on Christ, when we abide in his word. And when we do so, it helps us to see beyond the things in front of us. It helps us to see beyond the things that are seen, and it helps us look beyond to the things that are unseen, the unseen things which are eternal, the unseen things which change, which do not change, and which last forever. And so we rejoice in the Lord always. Secondly, second tool for us to keep our eyes fixed in heaven, Paul says to, to be gentle. I get that from verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, I say gentle. The ESV says reasonable. Uh, your translation may say something else. It, this is an idea that it's really hard to boil down to just one word. Other places in the New Testament where we see this, this word, for instance, is in 1 Timothy 3, where, where um, Paul is discussing the, the character of, 
of elders in the church, and he says they should not be a drunkard, they should not be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Later in in Titus chapter 3, he says um, to all people, to the whole church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. When we see this word used in the New Testament, it's, it's often contrasted with, with selfish ambition. Uh, you heard in both those passages, quarreling, fighting. This is uh, contrasted with the kind of person who just who loves to throw the gloves down and to pick a fight. Somebody who loves it to, to grab at that chance to stand up for themselves. To be reasonable or to be gentle is to be peaceable, to be open to reason, being slow to being defensive, being humble. E- even, in a sense, uh, the idea of being willing to yield to somebody else. So William Hendrickson kind of sums it up like this. This is the kind of person who believes that it is better to suffer wrong than to even get close to inflicting wrong. Why is this the mark of the upward-looking Christian? Why is this the hallmark of somebody who has their eyes fixed uh, upon heaven? As Paul says at the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand, meaning that his, he, he's promised to come back. The Lord has promised to come back. It's happening soon, even. It's going to be a, a triumphant. It's going to be a, a glorious coming when he does. And there's not going to be any sort of resistance when Christ comes back. Again, remember the context now. Paul is, is unjustly imprisoned in Philippi for preaching the gospel. He himself has his personal opponents slandering his name, creating a rivalry and speaking poorly of him, lying about him. This church has has their own opponents that, that Paul calls dogs. He calls them stray dogs trying to lead the church astray and to teach them false things. Again, Paul knows what he is talking about when he's teaching you this. He knows what he's talking about when he's writing. He says there are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And there are those who walk as enemies of God's people. They will cause us an endless amount of anxiety. Will cause us an endless amount of hardship. But we need to have the long view in mind when we face them. Paul says their end is destruction. While we ourselves as believers, we wait for our Savior who will come and rescue us and transform us to be like him. Vengeance is not our job. Vindication is not our job. No matter how slandered, 
how injured we may have been by our enemies around us. Vindication is not our job. Our job is to, to feed and to clothe uh, and to house our enemies when they're hungry and when they're needy. We're told to love them. We're told to live peaceably even with our enemies as far, as utterly far as it depends upon us. We are to live peaceably with those enemies. God takes care. God takes care of the rest. Uh, It's interesting. Paul actually doesn't just say, be gentle to everyone, to all men. He says, let your gentleness be known to every man. So what are you known for? What is your reputation? What do your neighbors know you for? Maybe a little more poignantly, what do your enemies know you for? What's your reputation with your enemies? There's one thing in the book of Philippians where Paul says, if you do this, you will shine like stars in a crooked and a twisted generation. Do you know what he says? Do not grumble, do not dispute. That's what the evil and the twisted generation does. They grumble and they dispute. And so when we love, when we show kindness, when we do not insist upon our own way, we shine like stars for the glory of Christ. We can afford to shine like stars like that when we know that the Lord is coming back, when we know that the Lord himself takes care of the vindication takes care of the evil and the injustice. We can afford to be gentle with all men. So those are two tools that Paul gives us to rejoice, to be gentle. Thirdly and finally, he says to pray thankfully. Uh, Again, so at the end of verse 5, he says the Lord is at hand. I think the Lord is at hand kind of connects both these ideas in verse 5 and verse 6. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything. Again, that doesn't that just feel impossible right now? Anything? Do not be anxious about anything? Especially in, in today's day and age with, with technology and communication and things like that, it, it just feels like we're supposed to be anxious and we're supposed to worry about so many more things. I mean, 100 years ago, would you be anxious for, for the COVID outbreak happening in Italy around the world? Would you be anxious for, um, would you be anxious for the, uh, the presidential elections in Peru? I, I don't know. You probably wouldn't have even heard about those things 100 years ago. But now we're expected to be anxious about those things. We're expected to care. We're expected to worry. Along with all the other things happening in our country and in, in every single one of the 50 states, and just tack that on to all of the different things that we face, right? Challenges with our job, challenges with our family, sickness, cancer, everything going on. 
Now, Paul does not deny that those anxieties exist. Paul doesn't even deny that those things aren't big deals in our lives. He doesn't tell us to just rise above them. He doesn't tell us to look on the bright side. He he doesn't even tell us simply to not be anxious. He tells us to replace anxiety with something else. He tells you what to do with those anxieties when you have them. He tells you where to go for strength and for grace in your time of need. He says to replace that anxiety with prayer. Why? Why is, why is prayer the cure for anxiety? Why is prayer the solution? Well, because as, as Jesus himself teaches us, really at the core of anxiety is a lack of trust in God. We worry that he won't provide. We worry that he's not going to take care of us. We worry that things aren't going to go our way. So Jesus says, look at how God provides for the birds of the air. They get every meal that they need. They have a nest to live in. They're they're clothed. And are you not worth infinitely more than birds of the air? You as a, as a human being, the, the, crowning, the crowning point in all of creation, the, the image of God, a, a, a body and a soul that will live forever, aren't you infinitely more valuable than, than birds of the air or the flowers and the grass of the field? Don't you think that God is going to take care of you? Do you not think that God loves you and he is looking out for you? We need to know in anxiety, we we need to know his fatherly and generous care. We need to know that he is there to strengthen us, to help us with contentment. We need to know that he is going to give us everything that we need and when we need it. The cure for anxiety is, is, and and the trials and the hardships and and everything we're going through, the the solution for that anxiety is not to minimize the anxieties. The solution is to maximize God. The solution is to know who this God is that's taking care of you. And and so Paul puts this this really strong emphasis on thanksgiving in, in prayer, right? Don't you think it'd be enough to just say, let your request be made known to God? But no, he says, let your request be, be made known to God with thanksgiving. Because as, as um, John Piper just puts it really well, thanksgiving recognizes that God is good, even though I don't deserve it. God is good even though I don't deserve it. And that's really the posture we need to have before God at all times. That there is nothing that we have that we have not been given by God. There is nothing we have that is not a, a, a generous and a gracious gift from Him. That there's nothing that I deserve. I am a rebel, I am a grumbler and a complainer. I dispute all the time. I I don't deserve any of the good things that he's giving me. And yet every good 
gift that we have been given comes down from our good and perfect Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. God is so good to give us all that he has. And so we offer our prayers with thanksgiving. Paul tells us to just simply ask. It's like the parable of the persistent widow from Luke. This widow was, was uh, just begging for justice to be done in a situation where she'd been wronged. And this, this unju- unjust, unrighteous, wicked judge was the person she was going before. And it's, he's an unjust judge. He's, he's not going to do right by her. But she keeps going back to his throne over and over again and just keeps asking and will not give up. And the judge just finally caves and said, you know what, fine, I'll give you justice. And the lesson we learn is to just keep asking God. Is he not so much more generous than a wicked human being? Won't he give you what you need? He wants you to ask, and he wants to hear from you so bad that he's commanding you to do this in your troubles. A very, very, very poor illustration of this is, uh, is me with my son, Elliot. I, I love to tell him that I love him, and I love to hear it back from him. He, he just hasn't quite grasped this idea of saying it back when I say it to him yet, so sometimes I have to tell him, do you love me? And he just says, yes. Do you love me? Yes. Can you say it? I love you. And that just warms my heart. That's a, a very, very poor reflection of God because that's very self-serving on my part to hear those words. But how much more does God know what he's talking about when he commands you to pray? And to let your supplications be known. He he knows what's best for your soul. He knows what's best for your heart. He knows what's best for your life. And he knows that's prayer. He knows that's going to him with your requests. So as as unnatural as it might feel in in the times of of trouble, as, as much as it might hurt, We need to be sure to offer our prayers even with thanksgiving. Uh, Again, a commentator says, a prayer without thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. The heart heart that gives thanksgiving to God is, is the heart that knows the one to whom you're praying. You know that God is good when you are able to offer it with thanksgiving. You know that he is able to give give you all things, do all things for you. You know that God is working for your good. And so we pray to him with thanksgiving. Again, all of these things just seem like impossible things to do, right? And yet God strengthens us to do them by his spirit. And when we do, the the promise that we have, the the result of doing these things is the peace of God, he says in in verse 7. The peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The, the peace of God that, that comes from above stands guard at your heart. It stands guard at your mind like a soldier, protecting your heart and your mind from the, from the, the fear, from the trouble, from the, from the disturbing, from the unsettling, from the confusing and everything that happens to us when we go through the trials. All of the fear, all of the anxiety, God's peace stands like, like a soldier protecting you from those things. Again, we have to notice, he doesn't promise to take us out of those problems. But he promises to shield our hearts in the midst of them. He promises to be our shield, to guard our hearts from worry and doubt and sin. And so whether it's personal attacks, whether it's distress, whether it's danger, whether it's hunger, whether it's death itself, God reminds us that, that he is the overcomer. Christ has already overcome sin and all of its effects. And he promises to guard our hearts, just like in Isaiah 26 that we read earlier. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And I, and I love the way it, it looks forward to that day, right? It looks forward to that day when we will be in heaven with God. And he's taken... He's, he's done full justice, and he says, Your dead shall live, and their bodies shall rise, and you who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. Our eternity is secured in Christ. Our eternal future is secured in Christ. And because of that, he, he swears to us, the Lord swears to us in his covenant, My peace is yours. The Lord gives you his peace. He gives you his spirit to work it in you. He has sworn it to you in his covenant. And if you are in Christ, that peace is yours. So fix your mind on him. Fix your thoughts. Fix your hearts. Fix your eyes on him. Find your stability in him during this time. And he promises you his perfect peace. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, this is a, a good and encouraging word from, from your scripture. We thank you for it. Lord, many of us have heard it before. We, we could even recite these verses by memory. But we pray this morning that you would not just uh, not just help us to know it, but help us to experience it. Help us to experience it deep in our hearts. We pray that by your Spirit, we, you would fix our minds on you. Help us to take every thought captive. And may we know not just your peace, but also your joy. Help us to remember the, the heights to which we've been called the depths from which we've been pulled out of. 
Help us to remember your goodness. Help us to be able to give thanks even now. And we ask these things in Christ's name.